John chapter 17 this morning. And we are in the section there, as we mentioned before, from verses 10 to 19. Let me just, by way of introduction, emphasize one truth. Jesus prays here one petition. This is His high priestly prayer that He prayed just before they crossed over the Kidron and went over into the Garden of Gethsemane. He wanted His disciples to hear this prayer. And He lifts up His voice to God and said, One request. Glorify your Son. Glorify your Son. That's verse 1. The reason for this request is also stated with the purpose clause here. In order that your Son may glorify you. So the question is, how does this work? How does the Father glorify the Son? And I think there are three things here, briefly, to uh, stated here for us to understand. In verse number three, it says, "By granting him authority to give eternal life to those chosen by God in eternity past, and given as a trust to Jesus Christ to redeem." He said, "I have you've given these to me." And they, they were yours. You've given them to me as a trust. Then in verse number 4, secondly here, by accepting his perfect obedience and, and, and so enabling the finished work of redemption to be received by God. God has to accept the sacrifice. God made the sacrifice. It was not an accident. And it was not martyrdom. God in eternity past. Determined that Jesus should die upon the cross. As a sacrifice for sins. And all the Old Testament sacrifices. Were just to illustrate that coming true sacrifice. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But the one sacrifice of Jesus once and for all paid the sin debt. And God determined that in eternity past. Now the son, before he goes to the cross, is asking his father, accept it. I don't think he had any doubt that God would, but he has, he's asking that in this petition. Then thirdly, he's asking that in consequence of this, that he has kept his he has kept the trust that the father gave to him in these that the father uh, that he's taught for now for these three plus years, and he is going to now die for them as a sacrifice. And if you will accept that sacrifice, but then thirdly, as a consequence of that, would you return the glory that I had with you before the world was? God, in Jesus Christ in eternity past, is God. In fact, that's what Paul says. He, he thought e equality with God not a thing to be grasped or to be clutched, to be held on to, but made himself of no reputation. But now he's asking, return to me the glory that I 
And I gave up in order to accomplish your will. And according to Paul, God did because it says God raised him up from the dead and then gave him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every tongue should, uh, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in last week's message, our focus was upon the hour. The hour has come. And I'm not going to go into that, but the reference, the reference there in, in, again in verse 1, but the message showed that Jesus demonstrated His faithful obedience to the Father in, right, in uh, rightly using His authority. He said, you've granted Him authority over all flesh. In order then to be able to give eternal life to those whom the Father chose. So now we come to this, that Jesus turns the focus of the prayer to the consequences of his giving them eternal life. And in this section, Jesus pressed his argument in support of the original petition, glorify your son. Why should you do so? And his, here's his argument. And I, let me just back off and for a minute and emphasize to you the importance that when you pray you have an argument God here's what I'd like to have and here's why you should give it to me <laughs> this book is full of promises and God loves to hear you cite those promises back to him Lord this is what I need and you promised God said, yeah, I did. <laughs> he loves that. So let's look at the son's argument. And that's the first point here, is the son's argument. Jesus manifested the Father's name to his chosen ones. He's, he has them in trust. Jesus has spent now three plus years with him, and in that three plus years, he has manifest the Father's name to them. And here, I believe, the word name is used to signify the divine character with respect to humanity. God is God, and we are human beings. God is invisible and cannot be seen. Jesus came to manifest God. That's John 1.18 tells us that. And I'll cite that here in a minute. But uh, he came to make manifest, the, to make re, a real person this invisible God. And this statement, I believe, sums up his whole ministry with them. He's, I manifest your name to those that you have given to me. And so the success here is, is shown in this part of the argument that the disciples kept his word. And they have kept your word. What does that mean? The, the, kept here is that they understood this is truth and they've embraced that truth and they believe that truth. When Jesus taught them, they said, this is the truth. And they received it. His truth, his logos, 
the the word there is it is the Greek word logos, which I believe is the body of truth, the doctrine of God in the uh, which reveals His divine character. Which that verse number six. They've kept your name, so they have understood who you are, and you're the truth. He is the truth. And I believe this without, without any question. The, the real evidence of genuine redemption and, and conversion and regeneration in a person's life is his understanding of the Word of God and his desire to keep, to trust, and to embrace that book, that Word, And then to observe its teachings in his life. I want this book to, to characterize how I live. Because it's the truth. And I believe that this fulfills what God promised then through Isaiah. My people shall know my name. And therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. And I believe he's, he's referring to the divine name. I am that I am. The ever living eternal God. Who was and is and ever shall be. Life, itself, life himself. That's his divine name. That's Isaiah 52 and verse 6. And thus... We read there back in the 14th chapter, verses 23 and 24, where Jesus taught the disciples, If anyone loves me, he will keep, that is, embrace, believe my truth, the truth of the word of God. He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, See, here's the difference. If you're not a believer, you don't love Christ and you don't love His Word. And if you don't do that, then uh, you're, you're not part of Him. But those who do, Father says, I'm going to come and make my abode with Him. And so then He says, And the Word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm teaching you this, but I want you to understand, this. I, it's not original with me. I'm telling you only what my Father has said to me, and because He's the one who sent me. So a result then of the keeping of His Word is a greater spiritual understanding. So then in verse number 7, Jesus says, they know all that I have came from you. They know that all that I have came from you. This is their faith in action. Trusting what Jesus said because they know he came from God. And this is further evidence of the, uh, evidenced in the next statement. They have received your words. That's a different word than the word previously there uh, when he says they have kept your word 
That's logos. This word is rhema. It's teaching or instruction. And as a consequence, believed that you sent me. That's verse 8. So, as I said, this word rhema is different from logos. Rhema is the teaching or instruction that's based on the word. The truth. The word of truth. So, Paul stated there in, in Romans ten seventeen, very uh, popular verse. So, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the rhema of Christ. It, it is this book, but it's this book taught by Jesus. He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life. See, that, that, that to me that's a very important truth. There's a lot of people who read the Bible get nothing out of it. Because they are not taught by the Spirit through the Scriptures. Jesus isn't the one who is teaching them. So the instruction, and, and here I think is a very interesting point, and I'm going to develop this. The instruction of Israel is called the Torah, or law, the law of God, the Torah of God. In the Old Covenant, God gave it to it, Israel there on Mount Sinai. And I believe that when Jesus is speaking here, he alludes to that time that Moses and the children of Israel were gathered to Mount Sinai and God spoke to them out of the cloud and verbally, audibly spoke to them and gave them the Ten Commandments. In fact, Exodus chapter 20 verse 1 is an interesting verse. In my English Bible it says, And God spoke all these words saying. God spoke all these words saying. What's interesting here is that the word that's translated spoke is the same word that's, that uh, it, it, it's the verbal form of the noun words. He literally worded words. <laughs> he worded words to them. What was, it, what was God doing? He's instructing them. That's Ramah. That's Torah. He worded words to them. And his purpose in revealing himself in this way to Israel was that, according to verse number 6 of, of Exodus 20, he might show them his steadfast love. Hesed. I said this many times. That's my favorite Old Testament word. Hesed. What is Hesed? It's covenant love. It's translated in my English Standard Version. That's one reason I like the English Standard because it consistently translates the, the Hebrew word hesed as steadfast love. I, I, I would prefer covenant love, but uh, it, that's okay. It's still good. <laughs> Ste covenant love to thousands. And here again, the Hebrews, it's literally in the Hebrew, generation upon generation. Think about that. How many generations have passed since God created all things? 
And he desires that his covenant love should be manifest to every generation, to generation upon generation upon generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's the agents. How will his covenant love be manifest to the generations? By the agents of God who love him and keep his commandments. That's you and I. That's the redeemed. So to be able to obey him and to love him, we need to know him. <laughs> we need to know who he is and what he expects of us. So every believer must understand the difference between God's revelation of himself on Mount Sinai, the Old Covenant, and Jesus' revelation of the Father on Mount Zion. Where did Jesus teach the disciples these truths? In Jerusalem. Where's Jerusalem located? On Mount Zion. You know, you don't think about that, but that's, that's a fact. And that's the New Covenant. Hebrews records the difference. There in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. Listen to this. For you have... and he, Now, let me just back up a second and give you the setting here. We have Israel... We have... Uh, excuse me. We have Christian, Israelite Christians in Jerusalem who, because of persecution... Are, are having second thoughts about staying in the church. So he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And now in, in chapter 12, he's telling them, here's the problem. The old covenant is gone. It's, he's already said that. The old covenant is gone. You are new covenant Christians. You can't go back to an old covenant that is no longer viable. So now, now he describes it in a little more detail. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words, notice, the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. When God spoke to them out of that scene on Mount Sinai, they were scared witless. And they begged Moses, please don't let God talk to us openly again. It's too frightening. It's, it's traumatic. And it was traumatic. Because he... As he tells us here, they could not endure the order that was given. If a bee, even a beast touches the mountain, it might be stoned. This is, this is hard. Indeed, he said, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, and here's the, here's the difference. You new covenant saints have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable 
angels in, in festal gathering and to the assembly, the church of the firstborn, regenerated saints, see, who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of, right, of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling of the blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. Notice again, word. Now, the problem with the old covenant was Israel refused the instructions. We read there in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 23. They did not listen or incline their ear. Now on Mount Sinai, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will, we will observe. But they didn't have the Holy Spirit to enable it. So Jeremiah says, yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. Torah. Thus God sent Jesus to gather a people for his name and to hear and to keep his instruction and to love and to obey him. So we read, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So this law or instruction is only for the regenerate. You know, sometimes people read these things and they say, is he trying to tell us that this is what we got to do to go to heaven? Like the Ten Commandments. Keep the Ten Commandments. Do we, do we keep the Ten Commandments to go to heaven? No. We teach keep the Ten Commandments because we are going to heaven and we have been born again of the Spirit of God and can do so. Therefore, now keep them. Only the shed blood of Jesus Christ can save us. Works can't. Christ, Christ shed his blood for that purpose. So, the new covenant believers are to be holy, and that's high progress to holiness. We need this instruction to enable us to keep his word and therefore be holy. And I'll, we'll show that here in a second. So, Jesus testified that he accomplished this with the twelve. He said, I gave them your word and they kept it. I mean, that's a, it's a very simple statement, but that's what's behind it. That's what's behind the statement. I gave them your word and they have kept your word. And because of that, they know something. And so now Jesus turns and he's, and he's asking something for them. He says, he was praying. And the word there is literally asking. It's translated praying here, but it, it's just a simple Greek word to ask. Prayer is asking. We ask God for something. But notice he asked for them, not the world. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. Why? That's an interesting thing. Only they and not the world belong to the Father. See, they were given to, they belonged to the Father, they were given to Jesus as a trust, and now God is, or Jesus is saying to the, his Father, I'm praying for them, those who you gave me as a trust, and, and not for the world. 
which I think is an interesting thing here because it places the world in sharp antithesis to the disciples. We have the world and we have the disciples. And obviously, world as used here identifies a rebellion, a a sinful rebellion of mankind. against the Most High. And it's obviously not the same world of John 3.16 that God loved and gave His Son to redeem. So if, if God loved the world in the same way that Jesus is using here, why would Jesus refuse to pray for it? God said He loved the world and then Jesus is now saying, I'm praying for the disciples. I'm not praying for the world. Uh, Why? Or, if God loved the world, why would God tell believers not to love it? (laughs) 1 John 2, verse 15. See, there's two different worlds that are in view here. And the world that's in view here is the world that... uh, according to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13, is going to be burned, burned up and renewed. Renewed by fire. So we read there in verse 13, but according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens, or that is really renewed heavens and renewed earth, which in which, is, in which righteousness dwells. Sin dwells in this one. Evil is, is very evident. But this deliverance here to a new heavens and a new earth requires the redemption of a new race to have dominion over it, which is what salvation is all about. This then, new race, for whom Jesus prays, it, it's not, he's not asking for the old evil order. It's going to be destroyed. But he's asking for the ones that are going to be part of the restored earth. The new heavens in which righteousness dwells. So we got to be righteous. <laughs> We're going to be righteous in this new order of righteousness. We need to be righteous. Right now we conform to the evil kind. Uh, the evil part of it too much. And then... The disciples also belong to Jesus because the Father gave them to him in trust. Thus, by keeping the trust, he was glorified in them. Now, following the, now that follow this argument. Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him so that he, that he would glorify the Father. Glorify me, and in return, I will glorify you. In that, his glorifying the Father demanded that he that he give his life as a sacrifice. Now the Father must cause the the work of the Son to succeed and thereby glorify Him. So the success of those whom Christ redeems is essential to the overall success of accomplishing the Father's will. How do you glorify the Father? When the believers whom Jesus has redeemed become the people that God desires them to be. That, and therefore they glorify His name. 
So Jesus is reminding the Father, as if he needed reminding, that, that he was going to now depart from them. He is imminently, because of the cross, he's going to leave them. And that puts them into a vulnerable position, those that he's leaving behind, the disciples. So now he says, I'm going to put them back into your trust. This is a great truth. The disciples were given to Jesus as a trust, and Jesus kept the trust. Now he says, Father, I'm about to leave, which means these guys are going to be here in these vulnerable circumstances. I'm giving the trust back to you. And the Father received it. So alone in the world, they would face temptation and hostility, and that put the responsibility back on the Father to keep them, keep the redeemed, keep them, keep them. They kept your word. They believed you and trusted you. Now you need to keep them. That brings us to the Father, to the Son's request here, which is in the last verses, and this is much shorter. Hang on. Jesus said, Holy Father, I, and I love that. Notice what he said. He says, Holy Father. This is unique to the Gospel of John. This is the first and only time Holy Father is found. And what is it? what it's emphasizing is the Father's position with relationship to the, to the disciples. We're called saints in, this, in the Scriptures. What are saints? They're holy ones. And I, I get up in the morning and I look myself in the mirror and I said, I don't qualify. I'm not much of a holy one. But I am. Not by virtue of what I do, but by virtue of what God has done with me. I'm a saint, not because I have been good and done all these wonderful works on earth and therefore I'm going to get crowned by some pope as a saint. No. I am I'm a saint because I belong to the Father and the Father is holy and I have been sanctified that as I have been separated unto Him. But now Jesus wants more than that. He wants what I am to be a reality in my life. That I act like a saint. That I look like a saint. So notice the request. Holy Father, keep them in your name. That is in, in accordance to, to your holy character. Those which you have given me in trust, see? So the, uh, then what does that mean? It's a awesome, transcendental, and familial intimacy. I am seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And I am a son of God. Wow. So in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, we read, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. That's me. I'm just a little child. 
and I'm growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. I'm being developed in, in practical holiness. Yes, he says, for Father, it was such was your gracious will. So the foundation of the relationship of Christ and his followers have the Father uh, and with the Father is holiness. Holiness. Notice Leviticus. See, this is an old covenant desire as well. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. Hmm. They failed under the old covenant. We succeed under the new covenant. And 1 Peter chapter 14. Uh, 1 verses 14 to 16 emphasizes that fact as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance but as he who has called you is holy and there he's citing from Leviticus eleven forty four, he who has called you is holy so you also be holy in all your conduct see that's not my position that's my practice in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Or Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's why he said to the disciples there on the Sermon on the Mount, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Holiness is opposed to worldliness and is the distinguishing mark of Christ's followers. So we read there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, since, these, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So the Lord now is asking the Father, keep them in your name. Verse 11. Keep them in your power. Keep them in your name. Keep them by, in your power. So in, in Psalm 54 verse 1. O God, save me by your name. And vindicate me by your might. Your power. Then in, in uh, Psalm 20 and verse 1, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Amen. Or Proverbs 18 verse 10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it un, in, and is safe. Runs into it and is safe. Should this request then be understood as locative or instrumental? And I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but this I think is important. Uh, and I, I would remind you that I do not accept the, the attempt to impose upon the Greek preposition en, if we spell it in English, en, but it's in in the English. Uh, I believe it is only locative. That is location. Never used in an instrumental sense in Scripture. Why then are there sometimes translations that use, for example, the King James uses the King James, which has keep 
Father, keep through your own name. You see, what's the big, what's the difference here? I think there's a big difference. Through your name is not what it says. It says in your name. You say, I, I don't really see the difference. Well, there is a difference. And, and may I, but let me just quickly express why was the uh, instrumental use of the, of the Greek N developed? I believe it was developed because they wanted to protect the sprinkling of babies, baptism as, as sprinkling of babies to baptize them with water rather than in water. See? You see the difference? <laughs> and so, our older English translations, they compromised. They even compromised on, the, on translating the term baptism. Baptism means to immerse, and you know, to dip, actually to dip. You don't just immerse because if you just immersed, they drowned. But you dip them. You put them under and you bring them back up. To dip. Not sprinkle. So the locative view here, I think, is keeping in the name. And what it means is in loyalty to you. Jesus asked God to keep them in covenant loyalty reflected in his name. I am. I am that I am. I am the source of life. Keep them in covenant loyalty to you in that name. So, John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is, in the, uh, who is at the Father's side, which is Jesus, He has made Him known. So Jesus asked God to keep His own in covenant fidelity to the revelation of the Father as given in the Word of God that Jesus then gave to his disciples. So the purpose that Jesus gives for this request is seen in four areas. And by this I'm going to close the message. Number one, unity. In covenant oneness. Verse 11, that they may be one. Notice that they may be one, even as we are one. And this involves the covenantal work of Christ to save people by union making them one with Him in Christ. A believer is one who is in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3, 9, 12, 20, 2, 6, 7, and 10, and 13 all emphasize in Christ. And this is reflected in the request that the Father keep them in His name, that is in covenant unity and covenant loyalty to that name. And then joy, second of all. Joy is what we have in covenantal obedience to the word. For we read there in Romans chapter 14 verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy. The present emotional state of the disciples was one of grief and sorrow at the news of Jesus' imminent departure. Jesus desired that 
in his absence, his own would experience the fullness of joy, which he expresses again and again, particularly in verse in chapter 15. God desired the happiness of his creatures, but sin perverted that happiness, but seeking, and they did so by seeking joy and happiness in everything but God himself. I'll be, I'm going to be happy because I'm going on vacation. I'm going to be happy because I get a new car. I'm going to be happy because I married a wonderful wife. I'm going to be happy because I have faithful, obedient children. I'm going to be happy because I've got a good job. I'm going to be happy because I got, uh, the list goes on and on. And that's not what brings you joy. Jesus brings you joy. Salvation restores that joy. Selfless service to Christ deepens it. The Lord makes the source of this joy the things that I speak in the world. And the reference is to the farewell discourse. In principle, it's a self-revelation of God in the person of Christ. Again, no one has ever seen God at any time. The only God which is in the bosom of the Father he has declared him. He, it is his joy, the joy that he has experienced in pursuing the glory of God and obedience to the purpose of God. So in Matthew twenty-five twenty-one, enter into the joy of your master. The one, the means of one's deepening joy of salvation is the word of God. I have given them your word. As Jesus found joy in his abiding in the Father's love, so do his followers. And the word of God is the way we do it. And as a consequence, the world's going to hate you because it hated Christ. Then thirdly is protection to guard them while they remained in the world. We know that everyone is, uh, it, who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God he who is born of God, uh, God, he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. First John chapter five verse eighteen. So many great promises are found in the Word. Psalm ninety one verse fourteen. Because he holds me fast in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. And lastly, sanctification. So that we may be his ambassadors in the world. So we read there in uh, Romans 6.19. For just as you have once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And finally, 2 Thessalonians 3, 2.13. God chose you as first fruits to be saved through, sancti through the sanctification of the Spirit, by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you hear me like you heard Christ. 
you hear him always because I'm in Christ you hear me and father I want to ask you that you glorify your children here in order that your children here may glorify you as Jesus also prayed grant grace power and enablement to them to do your will so that your kingdom comes to them and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven and we praise you and thank you for it in Jesus name Amen <laughs>